Welcome to a Christmas edition of the Atomic Hobo, where we'll try and keep with the spirit of the season by looking at the positive aspects of nuclear conflict. No, don't be daft. Of course we're not doing that. We're here this week with another episode of Four Minutes of Threads, where we'll examine precisely four minutes of that nuclear war film with which I am obsessed in minute detail. This is the second time we've done this, so we're starting at four minutes into the film, if you want to follow it along. Ruth and Jimmy are in the pub together, and she's just told him that she's pregnant. Although she assured him, you know, even if she is, not to worry, it's not the end of the world. The pub where Ruth and Jimmy are having their awkward conversation is the Nottingham House in Sheffield. And we've spoken in previous episodes about the strange role that some British pubs would have played in the run-up to a nuclear war. Now, the Nottingham House probably wouldn't have had this strange role as it's a city pub. But there are, or were, plenty of rural pubs in Britain which were fitted with a small grey box called a carrier receiver. This would have been stuck behind the bar and it would have quietly beeped. And if the beeping noise had ever stopped and broken out into a wailing sound, it meant that nuclear attack was incoming. Yes, this was giving the four-minute warning directly to the pub landlord. On receiving that noise, he would grab his portable siren, run outside and start winding it up setting off the nuclear siren for his rural community. I say that only rural pubs would have had this little device fitted because these areas out in the countryside wouldn't have been able to hear the big sirens in the towns and cities. So this was a cheap method to allow country folk to be alerted to the four-minute warning. Give a carrier receiver and a little siren to the pub landlord or perhaps the local doctor or vicar, someone who was known and recognised and trusted in the village. But the Nottingham House, being in a city, wouldn't have needed any such role. The drinkers there would have heard the sirens from the devices which were fitted to the roofs of police stations and schools and town halls, etc., and which would have been turned on remotely by a policeman major police stations in Britain all had a strange device called a carrier control point. This was a bank of handsets with buttons and lights and switches. And the policeman who was on duty, if the handset had ever rung, he would have picked it up and received a verbal warning. And on receiving that warning, he would have turned a few switches and those would have set off all the sirens in his local area. So that's how people in cities and towns would have heard the four-minute warning. But those who were out in the countryside might have had to rely on their local pub landlord. In the next scene, we are in the local newsagents and Alison, that's Jimmy's young sister, is doing her paper round. Well, she's not exactly working hard as the shopkeeper is sorting the papers 
Alison, being a typical teenager, lounges at the counter looking bored, leafing through a magazine with her personal stereo playing some music. We can't tell what she's listening to, but the number one single in Britain on 8th of May 1984 was The Reflex by Duran Duran. The magazine she's reading uh, is very 1980s. It's called Witch Video, which, of course, is a consumer magazine which would review um, consumer items, uh, mainly big things like cars, washing machines, etc., or in this case, video recorders. I suppose these magazines were very important because it was before the age of online reviews, of course. So before making a big purchase, you could buy the Witch magazine and see what they were saying about the item you'd saved up your money for. So Alison is looking through which video, even though, of course, a teenager in the 1980s couldn't possibly have afforded their own video recorder. It was quite a big deal, as I remember, for families to afford a video recorder. And so I looked at the old newspaper archives to try and find some adverts from 1984, when Thread was broadcast, and it showed video recorders on sale for about 300 and the cheapest one I saw was £349. And that was for a brand called Fisher. I've not even heard of Fisher. Or you could go up market and get a Ferguson one for £399. An inflation calculator tells me that's about £1,200 now. So Alison couldn't possibly have afforded her own video recorder. But I suppose videos in those days were quite cool, quite modern. And so she's leafing through the magazine to have a look at them. But to get a real flavour of the era, let's look beyond the prices and brand names of video recorders. And let's look back in the newspaper archives to see what was happening on that day. Now, the day is flashed up on the screen. It tells us it's um, Wednesday, it says Sunday, sorry, Sunday the 8th of May. And the newspapers we see on the counter, they have headlines which are frightening because, of course, the opening scenes of threads are all about how a nuclear war is drawing closer. We see newspaper headlines, we see clips of news programmes or radios in the, uh, radio programmes in the background which people either switch off or aren't paying attention to. And it makes us so frustrated. We want to scream at them to be careful because look what's going to happen. But they don't listen because they're too wrapped up in their own lives because the beginning of Threads or the first half of Threads is what we'd call a kitchen sink drama. It's about ordinary working class lives in this gritty northern city. And so they're getting on with their ordinary, often hard lives. They don't stop to consider what's on the news. We know, of course, we're listening out for it and becoming terrified. But the characters just don't listen. So whilst the shopkeeper gives Alison a bit of a telling off for having her personal stereo volume cranked up far too high, it will ruin her hearing. While she's doing that, as in engaged in the dull minutiae of everyday life, the newspapers that she's sorting on the desk have headlines like Red Army Tanks Go In and... Get out, US warning to Moscow. So let's dip into the newspaper archives and see what the papers really were saying on that day, which is Sunday the 8th of May. Well, when I go into the newspaper archives, I can't tell you what the Sunday newspapers said on the 8th of May, 
because in 1984, the 8th of May was a Wednesday, I believe. Which also brings me to the point, is Thread set in 1984? It doesn't say what year it's set in. It gives us the date. It doesn't give us the year. But clearly Threads isn't meant to be a futuristic film. It's very ordinary and realistic, as I said, in the style of a kitchen sink drama. It's supposed to look humdrum and everyday and normal. So that tells me that it's set in its own present day, which was 1984. That's when it was broadcast, September 1984. But... The action is taking place here in summer, of course. We know that it's 8th of May. So I'm going to assume then it's set in the following summer, the May of 1985. So let's look at the daily papers for that day, 8th of May 1985, and see if they were in fact crying about nuclear tension or was it something far more humdrum? Well, The Guardian on page two did have a direct reference to nuclear tension in the Cold War. The headline was VE Day Message to the Kremlin. Mrs Thatcher and Mr Mikhail Gorbachev yesterday exchanged greetings to celebrate VE Day, each expressing hope for constructive dialogue between London and Moscow. Well, that's quite pleasant, isn't it? That's not agonising and tense and frightening. The article goes on. The Prime Minister said in a letter to the Soviet leader that it was vitally important to work patiently and realistically for better understanding and cooperation. She said Britain rededicated itself to the values of freedom for which the victory was won. The message from Mr Gorbachev, released simultaneously, talked of, quote, a climate of trust and mutual understanding and the removal of the military threat hanging over the world. Well, that's nice, a reference to mutual understanding instead of what we were used to up to that point, which was mutually assured destruction. So, 8th of May 1985 had a little glimmer of hope. What about the Times, another big newspaper, of course, in Britain? 8th of May 1985, Gorbachev and Reagan pledge fight for peace. Again, a reference to VE Day. The article says the anniversary of peace in Europe 40 years ago has allowed both superpower leaders, President Reagan and Mr Mikhail Gorbachev, to suggest methods of avoiding a future conflagration in the area. So there are two quite relatively heartwarming stories. Now let's look at the local papers, the the smaller newspapers who often (laughs) can be a bit more maverick in what they print. They can have some more unusual stories because they can step off the beaten path. Well, the Newcastle Journal on 8th of May 1985 had the headline Council Anger at Nuclear Secrecy. Defence Ministry chiefs who have refused to confirm whether nuclear warheads are being transported through part of County Durham have been accused of hiding behind a smokescreen of secrecy. This article was particularly um, important because a local council in the area, Chesterley Street District Council, had declared themselves a nuclear-free zone. And, of course, one of the characteristics of declaring yourself nuclear-free was that you would not have any nuclear weapons or nuclear energy, etc., on your soil.
So we leave the newsagents, this headlines crying of war, and we jump straight to the clatter of cutlery. Oh, it's a domestic scene, how lovely. The Kemp family are at home having their Sunday dinner. Ah, but wait, it's not actually lovely. Never mind nuclear tension, there's nothing worse than family tension. Especially when you've just had to tell them your girlfriend's pregnant. I think he wants something else seen to as well. Don't blame me, it's not my fault. Don't go blaming it all on Ruth, Jimmy, that's not fair. It's irrelevant who's to blame now. Point is, what are you going to do about it? Now, the most noticeable thing here is that the dinner is being made and served by the man of the house, Mr Kemp. He rushes around the kitchen, tossing peas into the colander and serving up the plates. He's even wearing an apron. Perhaps it's being laid on quite thick, but we're clearly being told here that this is a house going through a bit of turmoil. Not only has Jimmy broken unwelcome news, but his dad has been made redundant, and so he has taken on the traditional female role. He's wearing the apron and he's making the dinner. And that tells us, or reminds us, that this is 1980s Sheffield, a working-class industrial city which was in decline due to deindustrialization. The scriptwriter of Threads, Barry Hines, was very left-wing and his work was often political. See his most famous other work, A Kestrel for a Knave, better known as the film Kez. In fact, I've read that he didn't get along with the director of Threads, Mick Jackson, as he considered him a bit too fancy and middle class. Well, even if the two men didn't get along, they certainly created a brilliant film, and we owe both of them a lot of thanks. So here we have a scene which should be peaceful and idyllic. It's Sunday lunch at home with the family. Of course, Sundays, and the concept of Sunday being a day of rest, a day of being at home, was so important in England that it was until 1994, when the law was changed, quite difficult to actually go out and go shopping. The message was clear, almost the same as the message in Protect and Survive. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. (laughs) Yes, England and Wales had insanely strict rules about shopping on Sundays, and these persisted right up until 1994. Large shops and supermarkets were not allowed to open at all on Sundays. There were exceptions. Uh, Petrol stations could open, for example, and motorway service stations, because you couldn't deny people fuel or deny them food and drink when they were on a journey. It could be dangerous. So my husband, brought up in England, has memories of having to trail all the way to the nearest gloomy, miserable petrol station if you just wanted a bar of chocolate. These same laws and restrictions had some weird outcomes. The most famous one, which people often quote, is that you could buy a porn mag at the magazine section of your local petrol station or motorway service station, but not a copy of the Bible. (laughs) So this law, intended to keep Sunday sacred and special, 
allowed you to buy porn, but not the Bible. I was raised in Scotland, which had no such restrictions on Sunday trading, and yet I still remember 1980s Sundays as being utterly dull. Of course, when you're a child, the thought of staying in and having a quiet day of rest is awful. It's claustrophobic, it's maddening. And I think Morrissey captured that mood perfectly in his song Every Day's Like Sunday, which also has references to nuclear war. We can also spot a milk bottle on the Kemp's dinner table. As I mentioned in my first Four Minutes of Threads episode, milk bottles seem to pop up throughout the film, or at least throughout the first half of the film, before nuclear war destroys everything. Uh, I think they pop up because they represent domesticity and wholesomeness and the ordinary everyday. And here we see one in the centre of the table, and that reminded me of a funny story about my Gran, my gran on my father's side, Sadie McDowell, her name was. She um, was a kind of hyacinth bouquet character. She was a nice lady, obviously, but I mean, she was quite, you know, she liked to appear posh and genteel, even though she was a working class woman from Blantyre. But she always liked to have the pretense of um, a bit of gentility. <laughs> and uh, there were some photographs taken at Christmas dinner once in her house, or her flat rather, in Blair Beth a housing estate in Rutherglen. And on the table, of course, glasses and plates, cutlery, Christmas crackers, etc. All the usual paraphernalia of Christmas. And in the middle of it, as with the Kemp's, there was a big glass bottle of milk. (laughs) It was probably put there because my dad, for some reason, loves to drink milk with his dinner. Even when we're out at a restaurant, um, he will order a pint of milk with his dinner. Uh, So, no doubt it was my dad who plonked a big glass bottle of milk down in the middle of Gran's carefully laid Christmas dinner table. And she didn't mind, of course, it's Christmas, everyone can go nuts, relax, enjoy themselves. But someone took some photographs, and when they were later developed, and she saw them, she was horrified at this big clumsy bottle of milk plonked right down in the middle of her table. And so before she allowed the photographs to be shared out with friends or neighbours, she took a big black felt-tip pen and she carefully scrubbed out the bottle of milk wherever it appeared in any of these photographs. And of course that had the opposite effect. Instead of concealing the milk bottle from any judgmental eyes, it just meant that everyone noticed it. Everyone pointed saying, Sadie, Sadie, what's this here? Why is there a big black mark right in the middle of the photo? And she was forced to admit, there was a milk bottle on my dinner table. But back to the Kemp's awkward Sunday family dinner. Jimmy, in a sulky, resentful voice, says that he and Ruth are going to get married. His parents seem quite enlightened, telling him he doesn't have to. This isn't the Victorian age after all. He doesn't need to do the right thing. But he grumbles, oh, they were thinking of marriage anyway, so the pregnancy has just brought it forward, I suppose. May as well. How romantic. (laughs) And there are more reminders of awkwardness and disharmony here, as the family aren't all eating together at the table. 
Michael, their youngest, is on the floor with a handheld computer game. And Alison, whom we've already met doing her paper round, is brushing her hair at the mirror. So there's no harmony here in this family Sunday lunch at all. Everyone bickering, everyone scattered around the room. Let's look at the computer game that Michael is holding as it pops up later in the film. I didn't know the name of it. I was not a computer geek when I was growing up in the 80s. We got an Amstrad when I was, uh, let me see, about 1991, I think, we got an Amstrad. And I remember games called Blitz and Oh Mummy, but that was as far as I got, so I didn't know what this would have been. So I asked an expert, Stuart Ashen, on Twitter, of course, as Ashens, who told me that the game is Epoch Game Box Penta. It was an early five-in-one game that folded up much like the much later Game Boy SP. So for geeks and for those who are obsessive with this film, that's what little Michael is playing on the floor, the Epoch Game Box Penta. Now the electronic sound played by the game is an eerie one for fans of the film because the game appears, as I say, later in the film after the bomb has dropped and poor Mr Kemp, the only survivor of his family, is sitting in a dark graveyard and he opens the game on his knee and he presses its buttons feebly by the firelight and it plays that same little beeping tone and it's a reminder of Michael and his dead family. Now we end our four minute segment with Jimmy storming out in a huff. He leaves the table, sick of all the arguing, and takes shelter in his little birdhouse out in the garden. He feeds and strokes his precious birds and finds a minute's peace. We can hear that Radio 2 is on in the background. And, being a real geek here, I consulted the Radio Times for 8th of May 1985, which is the day that we're assuming this takes place. And if we say that Sunday lunch was had at 1pm... We can see from the listings that Jimmy might have been listening to the David Jacobs programme, which was easy listening music. Although we know that this is set on a Sunday, and of course Sunday listings are different. So if we nudge our date forward to the following Sunday in May 1985, then Jimmy might have been listening to Brian Matthews Presents Two's Best. We can also see a bottle of Newcastle Brown Ale on the shelf next to his radio. Useful to have a few in stock, Jimmy, as we know that all the shops are shut on this grey 1980s Sunday. Although if you knew what was soon to come, Jimmy, you would grab this miserable, tetchy, ill-tempered day and clutch it to your chest like your favourite teddy bear. Because the bomb is coming. you've enjoyed our four minutes of threads remember you can find me on twitter if you have any questions about the podcast at julie a mcdowell or on facebook under the name nuclear britain and before i go let me thank my patrons remember if you want to support the podcast you can do so via my patreon which is at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo i thank everyone who contributes but this week let me say a special thanks to hallie andrews chris carini Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika, and Lucy Stegervald. <laughs>